0: Welcome, everyone, to the Wild West podcast, where we talk to the people shaping how we think about nature, the outdoors, and California's wild places. I'm San Francisco Chronicle Travel Editor Greg Thomas, and this pod is a place where I interview adventure athletes and environmental advocates and the movers and shakers who are defining and redefining what we do when we go outdoors. Today we're excited to have distance rower Leah Ditton on the podcast. Leah has paddled across the entire Atlantic Ocean, and she's currently training to row across the entire Pacific by herself, unsupported, in a rowboat. And so she's planning to leave from Japan and arrive in San Francisco, um, and she hopes to set out in 2020, leading up to the start of the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, She anticipates it's going to take her about five months, and so that's at sea in a rowboat alone. So as part of her training, she's been doing some big rows off the California coast recently. Um, She, the other day, spent 19 days paddling about 450 miles from San Francisco to L.A. Uh, And then a couple weeks ago, she paddled out and around the Farallon Islands, uh, and that took her three days. So Leah paddled from her home in Point Richmond across the San Francisco Bay to the city and came to the Chronicle office to sit down and chat. And we cover a lot of ground from how she's mentally preparing for five months at sea by immersing herself in sensory deprivation chambers and ice baths, uh, to the benefits of rowing totally naked for days on end, which she's been known to do, uh, to how to survive a typhoon in a rowboat by yourself. So without further ado, here's Leah. Well, thanks very much for making it out here, Leah. Appreciate you coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: So you just rode in across the San Francisco Bay from Point Richmond to San Francisco. Where did you come in in San Francisco?
1: I rode over to the South Beach Ballpark Marina.
0: Okay. So So. you're, do you have a slip over there or
1: something? Or how does that work? Uh, no, I just abandoned the boat in the guest dock. <laughs> yeah. okay. So you have to make it back there later this afternoon to, to retrieve
0: it and paddle home.
1: Correct. Yeah. As nice. long as you're not there for more than a few hours, it's usually okay. <laughs> okay. My boat is so distinctive that most people know who I am and where I'm going now in the bay. <laughs> so it's not like, is it locked up? or is it just well, I, we as don't much need to, as it can be. Okay.
0: We don't need to like give people, you know. <laughs> tell people where to to yeah. find your unlocked boat or anything. Right. But I mean I ride my bike around San Francisco every day and like if you were to ever un- like leave any part of your bike
1: unlocked it would be gone by
0: the time you got back.
1: Well, bike theft is pretty rife, but I think if you tried to make off with a very stripy boat across the bay people would people would know about it. <laughs> yeah.
0: So your boat's like rainbow colored sort of. I mean it's super it's like very striking. What was the idea of the the color design?
1: I was partly to appeal to children because there's a big children's education program with my project that I have yet to unveil and also it's based on a painting by Frank Stella called The Snail which seems very appropriate considering the size of the boat and what I'm going to do with it so it's, it's based on that painting the first painting which I ever saw in my young life um, in the Tate Britain Gallery in London and yeah it attracts attention
0: <laughs> yeah definitely when
1: I first saw the design on paper I kind of gasped I was like oh you know <laughs> That's a bit much. <laughs> yeah. But I've got used to it. And in fact, um, other boats around the world have now taken my lead and and gone with creative print designs as well. Interesting. So it started a movement in a way. <laughs> yeah. And you think
0: it's so that they get more attention or so mm-hmm. that their their boat is easier to spot or what's the idea?
1: Not really, just because you can. Okay. Like why do why have it blue and white when you could have it luminous green or bright yeah. orange? <laughs> yeah.
0: So I hear that Yellow boats attract sharks. Is that? Do you know if that's true or not? I don't know if it's true. It's sort I of this hackneyed science. I would like, have thought that yellow that
1: boats heard. actually repel sharks because black and yellow is nature's international sign for danger. Huh, yeah. And in fact, the, there's a university in Australia that did a, a lot of research into wetsuits and how wetsuits should actually be black and yellow. Right. I've seen those. They have
0: those like weird sort of uh, stripey, almost like camouflage style designs for wetsuits now that are designed to repel sharks.
1: Yeah, they call it the don't eat me suit, which I thought was very good. (laughs) (laughs) But they did tests where they had a normal um, wetsuit in a dummy and the shark went for it thinking it was a seal. And they put the stripey yellow black suit on the dummy and the shark was like, I don't know about that. (laughs) Yeah. And didn't touch it.
0: Uh, I don't know if that would be enough for me to feel comfortable swimming in a place with a bunch of sharks.
1: Well, a lot of surfers do it every single day.
0: Yeah, that's true. So. Um, okay, well, let's get into it. So, you well, so you are uh, you just got back from last week from paddling from the bay out and around the Farallons and back,
1: right? Correct. I set off from the Golden Gate to circumnavigate the Farallon Islands, the whole chain, not just the southeast island, and then back to the Golden Gate, which was um, a challenge that somehow came about earlier in the year, because I went to the Farallons as part of the patrol. So on the one island that is inhabited, there are about five scientists that live there. And every two weeks, a, a volunteer boat goes out to bring them food and I went out on the volunteer boat in January and then that was when I learned that in 1892 one of the lighthouse keeper's sons fell ill and he and his wife set off for San Francisco in an open dory and so that's the last time on record that anyone has rowed to or from the Farallons and so in a way that learning that threw down the challenge to know if it was even possible for me in my uh, 800 pound boat and And what it would take to do it, and so I gave it a shot, and I got two and a half miles south of the southeast island, and and you know vowed to go back, but the attempts to go back were uh, very hard. You know, I I didn't succeed twice, and they were very kind of full on learning experiences. Yeah, that I yeah, um, I ended up getting actually a tow on one of them from the coast guard. Um, because I rode for 22 hours and was facing having to go back out to sea again that night. So, yeah, I sort of suffered, you know, humility and setback <laughs> and technical challenges. And in the end, it just became this, I have to go around the Faralod's thing. <laughs> you know, in fact, fondly started calling it the F record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so to finally do it was a big deal Yeah, for me. Well, uh,
0: you know, during your sort of training and prep for that, did you learn about anybody else who's ever... Rowed out
1: to the Farallons and back from the Golden Gate or around them and back? No one, to my knowledge, has rowed out and around them. Why do you think that is? Because it's a really challenging row. Yeah. And in fact, in hindsight, I think rowing down the coast of California, which is what I did in July... Qualified me to row around the Farallons. Okay, like I, I actually underestimated the challenge of just going <laughs> around those islands that seem so near—only 26 miles offshore—but <laughs> yeah. they're right on the edge of the continental shelf, okay. where it goes from 100 to 300 to 3,000 feet of water, and uh, that means there's a lot of current. But it also is the reason why those islands attract so much wildlife because they're sort of a feeding station right near the deep water. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, there's like the upwellings come up or whatever right exactly. off the continental shelf and that's why the sharks like it. And yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and so what did you so you went out and how long did it take you to get
1: around the Farallones? Because you went over and it took you like two days three, three days? days and 35 yeah. minutes okay so the strategy was yeah that on monday i had to go last week i just had to give it a shot because <laughs> it was a rare thing that to get easterly winds okay. the wind had switched it was a window and i had to do it so i went out with this favorable wind and it also coincidentally was a double tide day so there was a, an outgoing tide and a very weak incoming and then another outgoing tide and on the other previous failed attempts the strong incoming tide had actually scuppered my attempt okay so you're like i'm rowing i'm merrily rowing out 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 and then it's like the tide is now shoving me back in yeah (laughs) so to get that you know out a little bit in but then another out was just it was a dream set of of conditions but that didn't mean that i would be successful because at some point the tide stops the wind turns on and i was now five miles shy of the island in fact i hadn't gone as near as i had with my my first trial. Uh-huh. So even the end of the first day, nine hours of rowing in, I wasn't sure at all if it was, it was going to be possible. Yeah. Um, so I waited overnight and then the next morning I was like, okay, in the morning there'll be no wind. I'll go for it. And of course in the morning the fog rolled in and I couldn't see the end of my nose. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> and so I ended up going round an island I couldn't see. Oh, wow! Well, okay. It was completely obliterated by the fog. Yeah. You could see the white water where the, sort of swell is smashing the rocks because the white water is somehow luminous. It's whiter than white. And so you've got this eerie white line and these, this roaring sound of water, like a waterfall because this water's hitting rock right. and screaming sea lions, and the rest of it you can't see. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, and are you worried about
0: freighters or ships
1: uh, when you're out there
0: and you can't see anything?
1: Getting to and from, yes, but you know for sure there's nothing around the islands. Right, right. Um, but the next big challenge then is lee shore so this is where the strategy really comes into play because when the wind switches on it's predominantly northwest and northwest if you're will put you on the rocks so um my decision to go for it round the south island had to be quite carefully thought through yeah and there was enough period of time where i thought okay this is it but i sacrificed lunch no siesta. <laughs> I think I rode nine hours, ten hours straight. Oh, man. And my heart was racing slightly, going, I have to get clear of this island before the wind turns on. Yeah. And then, and then of course, there's the next chain of islands, and you go, okay, well, if I go beyond them, where does that put me for the night? So I had to stop there, hang off the southwest corner of those islands, and then go again in the morning.
0: Man. And so when you stop, you drop, you drop your sea anchor, is
1: that right? Yes. So a big parachute that... I throw into the water with 200 feet of line. Okay. And sometimes it hits the bottom. <laughs> right. Sometimes I'm basically anchored to the bottom, and it comes up with mud and sea lice and all sorts of creepy things.
0: That brings me... So <clears> I've <throat> been following along with your blog, which is an awesome read. I really enjoy it, because never, you never know what's going to pop up on it. It's not just like <laughs> a series of coordinates and your average speed for the day or whatever. It's kind of this like personal thing. It um, gives you a window. <laughs> and uh, you know, for most of us, I think probably... Uh, into this world that we know nothing (laughs) at all about and so one of my favorite moments of um, of the Farallon swim was uh, this is a quote from the blog the situation was worse than I thought the retrieval line for the sea anchor must have got trapped under the parachute of the sea anchor hand over hand I began to haul uh, I began to haul in the deployment line the line must have dragged along the seabed as long centipede creatures sea lice fell off the line and dropped into the boat but we never get a follow-up on that. Like, what happened to the sea lice and the centipede? Are they just, like, creepy crawlies on the on the, the deck of your boat now?
1: No, so i flicked them back in. Oh, okay. I so wish I had taken a photograph of them, because some of them were a couple of inches long. Yeah, sounds you sound know? super gnarly. But I started wearing gloves when I bring in the anchor to save my hands from um, being kind of torn while wet. And so I didn't want to reach for my camera with you know okay. sea anchor sea lice hands if yeah you, if you know what I mean but I should have done because yeah when am I ever going to see those giant little centipede things again yeah hopefully never
0: <laughs> yeah is, I just thought that was funny it's like I don't know something that never would have occurred like of all of the things that you have to contend with like hauling up sea lice or whatever into
1: your boat is not something that I would ever have imagined I also picked up a crab that oh, really? started to scurry around my boat with its shell. And I was like, hang on a minute, you can't stay. <laughs> so I think later on in the day, I picked him up and plopped him back in, going, yes. I'm sorry I've displaced you from wherever you were. But <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, this is another I this is another fun quote that I had pulled from your blog that I'm going to read to you right now. <laughs> it's. Um, this is like, okay, well, so I'll just read it. So the quote is, um the flies I'd picked up rowing close to Southeast Farallon were still on board. In fact, two of them were getting along rather well. One kept mounting the other. Two copulating flies as shipmates, just what every boat needs." <laughs> and I just love that one. I mean, it's a funny visual, but it's like, this is exactly, when I try to imagine what, go, what like, how a person deals with being at sea for extended, like prolonged periods of time, it's basically, I imagine this like, sort of mental exercise in prolonged boredom where you just sit and like watch flies have sex <laughs> on the rim of your boat or whatever. Um, so I don't know, am I way off base or is that kind of part of the experience?
1: Well, you do, you do end up animating the creatures that you have. Uh-huh. You know, the, the dolphins and the whales have personalities when they visit you, they're not just dolphins and whales. Um, but I'm never bored, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. books. Okay. In fact, I think I listened to three when I, in those three days oh nice and um i'm about to do a page on my blog with my my bibliography if you like because i'm sure people want to be want to know what i'm what i'm listening to
0: i was curious about that because you listen to music too right yes what do you what kind of music do you listen to
1: that's a really interesting thing because music like the food somehow you don't want variety Hmm. isn't that an odd thing but you've got so many decisions that you need to make about your day your strategy you know how long you're going to row for all of these things that some things you want the same mm-hmm. and so when i rode the atlantic eight years ago i'd never i didn't want to eat one meal the same as another but this time my meal my food is exactly the same I ate the same three things for breakfast followed by you know meat and cheese and then you know it goes on in this way and i kind of pick an album and end up listening to that album only
0: whoa What was the album for the Farallon? Well, I guess it was audiobooks. Yes. But do you listen to music too? Yeah,
1: I usually start the day with a bit of music and then sometimes at night. And when my brain is tired, I drop down from audiobooks to music. Yeah. And then I know when I'm really tired and I don't want to listen to music anymore. I'm like, okay, (laughs) that's a sign. So when I rode down the coast of California in July, (laughs) I hadn't paid for Spotify Premium. (laughs) I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what happened? I ended up with the one and only album that comes with the phone, which is that U2. The U2 album, album. <laughs> which I think I last checked I'd listened to 64 times uh-huh. on the way down. I can even tell you what song's coming next, what word. And of course the irony was there's that song called, you know, Santa Barbara, bar bar Barbara, you know that's oh, yeah. one of the first songs and I was heading for Santa Barbara, so it was like the destination song. <laughs> Man. So this time it was a an album by a singer-songwriter called LP. Oh, uh,
0: as an El Producto?
1: I think Lauren something or other, but she goes by LP. Oh, 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 okay. And it's a singer. Yeah, it's a oh, singer. Oh, sorry. This guy LP I'm thinking of as a rapper. No, no. It's not, a, not It okay. sounds like it. It, it. I could be anybody, but um, I have a friend who runs a recording studio down in L.A., and he exposed me to her music, and it's just enchanting. Oh, nice. And so, yeah, that became my... Far- Farallon album, if you like. That's cool. What's the <laughs> What's the vibe of the album? It's just incredible voice. She's, yeah, got this oh, amazing, gorgeous voice and um, great lyrics as well. Okay. That's key. If you're going to be stripped of communication with the outside world, you want the music that you listen to t- to tell stories. So U2 is very good at that. <laughs> if you think about that, you know, Joshua Tree and all that stuff. Yeah. And then so is she. You know, they're they're mostly... Uh, Love Gone Wrong Stories Hurts. Mm. um, Yeah, and rap actually is quite good because rap is... Just a ton of lyrics.
0: Tons of lyrics, yeah. Yeah, that's good. What are your favorite rap albums to listen to when you're rowing or training?
1: Well, my brother snuck on an album. He used to make my playlists. Uh This was for a crossing of the Atlantic, uh, a sailboat race. And I started listening to the song, and it starts with the first line is, Why is marijuana not legal? (laughs) (laughs) and it was by a band called Lazy Boy and the song was underwear goes outside the pants and it talks about homeless people and why should they you know people some some guy was saying you know i pass this homeless guy and somebody was complaining that he should get a job and um he's like well even McDonald's probably has a no underwear outside the pants rule. You know, <laughs> even if it's not on the books, it's probably you know in play. So there are some fantastic lyrics in that song, and I kind of chuckled with laughter, yeah, uh, listening to it. So nice, yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, rap seems good. I feel like for me, it might be something like not techno, but something that has a lot of um, like some rhythm, like some sort of driving rhythm, and then kind of a loop that I can some like kind of groovy loop that I could get into. Maybe I don't know, just something to zone out a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking of maybe organizing my music by emotion, going, I want to feel this emotion, I'll listen to this type of music. Yeah. Because it's really what it does for you. I'm not if I want entertainment, audiobooks is probably better. But if I want to feel something, then music's really good for that. Yeah. And this L P album, she was very good at it making the whole kind of universe feel like a, a cathedral with her voice. Mm. It just seemed such a great fit for these jagged rocks of the Farallons, you know, this wild place and this beautiful, enchanting kind of um, voice coming coming out of my boat. Yeah, that's cool. What books did you listen to on your Farallons trip? <laughs> um, I was this listen- is like trashy Daniel <laughs> no, Steele novels? Or? No, not at all. I was listening to Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Can I say that? Yeah. <laughs> and... Also, um, achieve the impossible, which is by a sports scientist that I know. Okay. Which I got a lot from, and as I was achieving the impossible. (laughs) And what was the third book? Oh, I tried to read, listen to the Bob Woodward one.
0: Oh, the uh, what's it called? It's the uh, the one about Trump.
1: Yeah, I've listened to all of the political books. They're quite good in boat listening, some of them, because they're, you know, mildly scandalous and full of he said, he said she said. Okay. But actually, the Bob Woodward was one too many. Hmm. Um, like Hillary took me all the way to the Farallons and back on my second attempt and was still warbling on when I came back like <laughs> 10 hours in. <laughs> <laughs> but she was quite a good voice in the boat. Uh-huh. Um, and then Fire and Fury, of course, was was a good read just in the same that jilly jilly cooper writing is a good read it's sort of scandalous type stuff um but yeah the the bob woodward one was a bit it was the same too much of the same okay for me which is unfortunate because i think he's a very good writer
0: yeah was the did hillary record her own yes oh really yeah oh that's cool so still (laughs) still (laughs) um okay And so, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Before I forget, there was this one awesome moment from, um, again, another thing I love about this blog is, like, just the unsuspecting stuff that you come up with. And so... um on your Farallon's trip, there's this really funny moment. You're like three hours into the row, and you get your period, <laughs> and then and you write about it. And so you go, <laughs> and so you're you're paddling out to the Faralons, which is like the um has this this famous uh, shark rookery there. There are all these great white sharks that love hanging out there. And so you're emptying your menstrual cup overboard into the water, and like it sounds like all you're thinking about is just attracting great white shark. Basically like chumming the water for these sharks to come follow right. around. Right, I
1: mean three hours in really, the worst <laughs> timing. I'm like good god, I'm going to a shark breeding ground yeah. pouring warm mammal blood into the water <laughs> every four hours. I yeah. was like, I might as well be Dumping in tuna charm and calling it done, yeah. and so I mean, I literally did have these visions that a shark was going to bite my oar any minute. And I reckon if there were sharks out there, they would have found me. I would have seen them. I mean, seriously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It seems like you're asking for so, trouble. I mean, I w- it's a little bit too much, too much detail for a lot of people, but I thought <laughs> I've just got to write it because it's in a way too funny. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it was great. I mean, those are the kind of things that, at least for me, like make me curious because it's, or you know, make me want to keep reading because. Um, that's what, you know, when you talk about this, like a 19-day row from San Francisco to L.A., it's like a lot happens to a person in 19 days, you know? Um, there's all kinds of moments and, like, emotions and sort of this whole journey for a person. So it's fun to get the details like that.
1: Well, I had a sort of blood story on the rowing down the coast, too. I pulled in my sea anchor one time, and it was just covered in blood and I think um, and entrails and stuff. And I think it, a whale had been hit by a ship. Okay. And um, that stank for ages. On your boat. Yeah. Oh, man. And at that time, I also thought, good God, you know, I've just, you know, sharks, like, <laughs> just yeah. put up a sign. Why don't you? Yeah. You know? <laughs> oh. so, but it may not have been whale blood. It may have been some kind of plankton, but um, I'll never know, of course.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned, since you brought up smell, I thought that was one, that was an interesting thing that's kind of factored in, I think, to your rose, is it seems like smell, I don't know if it plays a more prominent role, but you um, you describe the sense of smells like when you're sort of out at sea, and then smell when you get closer to land. And it just seems like there's this very distinctiveness of scent that maybe like we don't appreciate just kind of walking around in our day-to-day lives. So I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think it's because you're stripped of stimuli. If you strip yeah. away noise, communication, and to be honest, mostly sm- a smell for the most part. There's the smell of the ocean, which does change according to the depth of the ocean. Uh-huh. But there isn't really much variety in smell. So when you get a whiff of, I don't know, seagull shit on a rock, you're like, poof, that's pungent. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then when you get closer to land, if it's just rained or it's the early part of the morning, I mean, sometimes the, that marine headland can just smell amazing, you know, like a sort of uh, eucalyptus forest. And you like land; it's like an elixir, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And then, um, in areas where there's obviously quite a lot of sea life, then it smells that kind of rich lobster bisque type smell—the really, really seafoody type smell. Yeah,
0: interesting. What's so, what's the difference between, or have you noticed between uh, like shallower water and deeper water in terms of the smells?
1: Well, shallower water tends to have the smell of whatever is in the bottom, so mm-hmm. it can smell of the mud, or yeah, there's a lot of sea life; it can smell of that kind of marine sea life, seafoody smell. Okay. Um so that's mostly what I mean by that. And then the color of course changes. Right. And sometimes down to the yeah, these incredible blues in the mid ocean. Yeah. That's cool. I remember the first crossing I ever did of the Indian Ocean, this back when I was 21, and we would drop a glass bottle, we'd fill it, a a vodka bottle to be honest, the captain owner of the boat drank a lot of vodka, and so we'd fill up these these glass bottles and we had this sort of favourite game when we went for a swim, which was to drop the bottle, hold our breath and count how many seconds you could see that bottle, and it would spiral down 20, 30 seconds down, just that clarity of depth. That's awesome. And then it became a speck, and the sunlight was you know, like a diamond kind of pyramiding down into the water. And it was, yeah, it was a sort of special memory in a way of the, the, those blues and the clarity of the mid ocean. Yeah, that's awesome.
0: Um, before I forget, also, so you do this row out to the Farallons, and maybe it's the first time since 1892. And you, it sounds like you submitted an application to Guinness to get a world record for it, and they rejected it.
1: They did. What's up with that? They said they don't necessarily record firsts, which sort of yeah, throws on its head. It's like, hang on, isn't that what Guinness is all about?
0: Yeah. How many times does it have to be done before somebody gets to claim a record for it?
1: This is a really good question. I mean, if I break my own record, does that now make it a record? Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so I've decided, okay, Guinness, if, if it's not, I don't know, significant enough for you, I am going to lay down a trophy because I've already had two people contact me saying you know I want to challenge this oh really (laughs) yes the Farallon row yeah and they're both rowers and so I was like all right I need to come up with a trophy and back when in the early part of the year when I came up with the idea I was I was uh, joking with a friend having gone to see Eddie Izzard the comedian up in Napa Valley and Eddie has this great sketch called Death Star Canteen and he imagines that on the Death Star there must have been a canteen uh-huh. and so he does a sketch and you can see it on YouTube they do it in Lego on YouTube and Darth Vader goes down and goes I want the pasta Yata. <sighs> and the guy behind the counter goes okay but you're you're going to need a tray and he goes I am Darth Vader I do not need a tray I will kill you with a lightsaber and he's like um okay okay <laughs> and then the next guy in the queue comes up and says are you Darth Vader are you Jeff Vader can I get your autograph <laughs> and he goes oh are you Jeff Vader are you my boss and this goes on And ultimately, he goes, I do not need a tray. And the uh, server says, but but it's hot. And he goes, oh, oh, it's hot. You should have said. (laughs) And then he picks up the tray and he goes, this one's wet. This one's wet. This one's wet. What do you do? Dry these in a rainforest? (laughs) And so my friend and I were joking, well, you may go, you may be about to row the Pacific, but you're still going to need a tray. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so that laughingly became you know you may you may have gone round the Farallons, but you're still going to need a tray. So my idea is to take plastic kind of canteen tray and have it engraved with the map of the Farallons and the, the time, and it would be probably brown, you know, and hook on the wall, and that that would be the trophy for the the, the F record. That'd be cool. <laughs> um, yeah, something's
0: going to have to happen
1: if people if other people are interested. It will gather momentum. Yeah.
0: Is there so is there a world record? On record for the uh, cross-Pacific row that you're gonna do coming up from Japan to San Francisco? Yes because a man has done it first. Yeah do you think that well and it's been done twice I mean I guess right. that's maybe part of it. Uh,
1: but well yeah, the first time was very significant. The uh, man who set the record Gerard d'Aberville was French and in France Sailing and other sports like this are basically national sports. Right, right. He had a budget of half a million euros back in 1992 when he did it. And he actually got the Legion of Honor. It was gifted to him by the the French president for that achievement. So it was a big, big deal. And then the next guy who broke his record arguably didn't, actually. He drew a line from where Gerard had finished and said, I'm going to cross that line of longitude and call it done. But he Ah. was much further south. So Gerard got towed 20 miles, and in a way for the right reason, because he was the other side of the Columbia River bar. So was he ever going to succeed in crossing that bar in early part of winter? I mean, not without great peril. Whereas Emmanuel Quantra was 50 miles from the land and got towed that 50 miles. So one day before the record was set by Gerard. So he said, I have crossed his longitude line one day in advance of his record and therefore broken his record. Uh, but he was suave and very good looking you know, <laughs> and French and his PR company went to bat for him over this. But yeah. arguably he didn't break that record. And in fact, um, you could say that neither set the record because both didn't reach the land. Right. That was what I was going to ask. So what's the what exactly is the... The journey,
0: or the you know the the route that you're going to take, is it specifically like to cross this line of longitude again,
1: or you're like, no, screw that. You're yeah, gonna screw do your that. Own thing. I'm okay. going to be the first woman, so I'm going to set, <laughs> I'm going to set the parameters. Um, my intention is to depart from Choshi, Japan, and this will be three months before the Olympics, the Tokyo 2020 oh, Olympics, yeah. and so the world's media will be kind of setting up, and off I go. And my goal is to row under the Golden Gate Bridge, nice. but the reality is that. Anywhere on this coastline could end up being the finish line. Yeah. But I am you know, determined it, it will be land.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Every now and then you get like a like a maintenance guy who's singing to himself right outside <laughs> on the other side of the wall. And why not? <laughs> yeah. We'll maybe edit that. Maybe we'll keep it. <laughs> in. Um but okay, so let's talk about this upcoming row for you. So you're training. And so you said you're doing it in March of 2019. But has that been pushed back now, or that's still...?
1: My goal was to do it in 2019 with a new boat. But the right. the reality is that the the new boat design has been finished, but the build has not yet been funded. Okay, And so I put it to my community recently, my uh, Facebook following and also my Patreon following because I'm funded by crowdfunding and asked them, you know, should I row with the boat that I have? Like, I'm physically, I'm mentally ready. Should I just go with it? And we debated it at a great length. Like 150 people took part and threw threw down their opinion and pretty much unanimously said, look, you know, the people who have tried in your sister ships to your boat have failed. Hmm. You know, my boat is not typhoon proof. And when it was built 10 years ago, it might have been but the storms now are much stronger much fiercer the weather patterns are are a mess frankly and i need a boat that that is going to be a solid shell for me to survive the most extreme uh, conditions yeah also by building a new boat it puts me in the category of potentially challenging the men's record because if i row the boat i have which is twice the weight of the boats that those two men used there's no way i i can be anywhere near their times to finish. Right. And the longer you time, time you spend at sea, the more the risk goes up. You're carrying more food because it's going to take longer. You're now rowing a heavier boat. So you need more food. You know, you're pulling a heavier boat, which requires more calories. So you need more food, which is now heavier. And you just go in this endless spiral. <laughs> that is the next question here
0: in my notes is like you get into this cycle where it's exactly like the, more, the longer you're out or the heavier your boat is, like the more food you need, the more food you need, the more weight, the more weight there is, the more, ca- like, the more you have to, the more effort you put in, the more calories you consume, which means more food. So like, where do you find kind of the, I don't know, the balance uh, to try to figure that out?
1: So my goal is new boat, let's be on a le- leving playing field with those two men who set the record and take five months of food only. Because there's nothing more motivating than a ticking clock yeah. of imminent starvation <laughs> when I rode down the coast of California I took 10 days of, of food and it took me 12 and a half days and really from day 3 I was like I need to you know, wake up that little bit earlier and row that little bit longer because I'm going to run out of food mm-hmm. and of course in rowing down the California coast it's not a drama you can pull into um, Morro Bay or San Luis Obispo or whatever but in the Pacific you know there isn't anywhere Yeah. <laughs> so you have to manage the resources that you have yeah So are you budgeting five months at sea and like how many calories per day? Six to six and a half thousand. Okay. So the men's record stands at 134 days or 137, depending whether you want to argue about the second guy who beats it. (laughs) And yeah, I'd like to be in that ballpark of finishing in that time. Nice. Yeah, and I think I read on your blog that like,
0: You think with the boat that you have now, the heavy boat, the 800-pounder, it's like five and a half months at sea. Yes. But if you get this, is it roughly 400 pounds? Yeah.
1: Around 400 pounds, yeah.
0: So around 400, that shaves a month off of your time, potentially. Easily. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like it's worth straightening out, getting invested,
1: like investing in. I think it's worth persevering for.
0: Yeah, definitely. Man, that's, I mean, the difference of a month is huge.
1: I think you could do it in the boat that I have, but it is a risk. You need to be avoiding the extreme weather and so if a typhoon came along you basically have a decision do you get off do you you know connect with a passing ship and abandon your boat or do you go through the storm knowing probably your boat won't survive intact enough to continue with the risk of injury and probably extreme trauma and so you know let's just go with the right equipment yeah if you know better you know you, you should yeah so 2020 it is
0: yeah <laughs> yeah and so a typhoon hits and, or, you know, is approaching, a severe storm is approaching, what happened? Like you literally batten down the hatches, right? You Everything is like lashed to the boat in some way. And then you have to like crawl inside a compartment, but the boat is gonna roll, <laughs> potentially tumble. So how do you, do you like strap yourself into bed or something? How does that work?
1: Well, so storms just don't appear out of nowhere. Okay. You know, they, they track across oceans, so you get some warning. Um, and then there's all manner of of sequence in the run-up to it. In a way, they're kind of exciting <laughs> because you go, it's coming, it's coming, like the anticipation is killer. And then there's no wind, boof, it just dies. And then the waves start building and there's still no wind. And, and then it's usually torrential rain, like rain so thick, like it's a Japanese woodcut. And then, boof, out of it comes this howling winds and so you get the warm up you get this this period of time uh, to prepare so yeah, so say I'm in the storm and I have to think about how I'm going to lay the boat it's called laying the boat in the storm do I put out a sea anchor, do I drag a line okay. and, and, then if, and then at some point you have to make a choice am I going to be on deck for this and man the boat, monitor the sea anchor monitor the lines or am I going to batten down and go inside so the plan is to have a like a five-point harness inside that straps me to the bunk. Okay. And then, you know, buckle up for, like, the worst roller coaster of your life. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like
0: basically going into the dryer, like the clothes dryer on Tumble or something, is what I imagine. I don't know if that has any accuracy.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is where coming at it with the background that I do as a professional sailor, I might approach the storm um, management a little differently. Because if you were on a sailboat, there's no way you would abandon the boat Mm -hmm. you you might hove to you know at some point but up to that point you are on deck you're on deck and you're making sure that things aren't getting chafed or or destroyed and you're constantly making adjustments for the conditions whereas in in the past most ocean rowers have had a background in rowing or adventure and so yeah they just throw out the anchor and go inside and that may be the downfall for some of those failed attempts, is not realizing the conditions are changing and that, that the boat needs to be um, set up slightly different mm. f- multiple hours in. I mean, it could be a, you know, coffee and Red Bull experience for multiple days. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, how long do these storms, I mean, these storms can last days on end? What's
1: the... A couple of days, usually. Of days. And in a way, the, the second p- phase is sometimes more dangerous. So you get through the extreme of it, and then you are exhausted, and also the the waves are a mess. The wind is gone, and that's often when the boat gets pitched or pitch pulled, or you know the waves are like coming left and right center, and they're no more. They're not organized anymore. And um, certainly in sailboat races, that's often the most dangerous period of time. Huh. You're tired. The conditions are a mess, <laughs> and bad things happen.
0: Yeah. Um, so one of the things that um i you know again reading your blog i was just thinking and thinking about how this stuff works like there's a lot of um careful planning and consideration that goes into these trips but this is what you're proposing is a potential like 4 to 5 month journey so what kind of like how do you prepare for that you know
1: physically or mentally or yeah i guess or mentally or technically
0: yeah mentally and technically like logistically how are you going to you know if if something bad happens What's kind of your recourse and then also just yeah what do you, how are you preparing yourself mentally for
1: this so i've been at this full time now for two years okay. but really my mind started working on this project several years before that and i think in 2015 i was like right that's it i'm doing it because i realized that i'd sort of put some elements of my life on hold until i did this and it was holding me back I thought, I have to do this. It's clearly something I want to do. And then I said to myself, look, this is so unique, this desire to row across an ocean. That alone is the reason why I should do it. Uh Um, So in the last two years, I have been trying to make rowing an ocean normal. So I row my boat around as if it's part of my life. And there's some things I do, like I go to the float tank every two weeks and that's the cabin space is not too dissimilar from the size of my boat. And you lie there in Epsom salt water in the dark and you disconnect your mind from your body and S- you yeah, breathe. sensory deprivation. Yeah, it's a sensory deprivation experience. How long do you do that for? An hour and a half. Okay. And it's very calming. It's great for recovery too on hands and skin and and stuff. But yeah, it's been really good for mental training. And I'm just started the Wim Hof method. Oh, the ice baths? Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) So it's all cold showers from here on. (laughs) Really? Uh, And it's already had a huge impact. Even I've noticed it rowing to the Farallons because I usually wear a hoodie or balaclava because you get so much exposure to the face. And it has given me tendinitis or, you know, um, kind of inflammation around the, the eyes. And so by having cold showers and washing my hair in cold water, wow. Like even just this last week, I didn't need to cover my face anymore Interesting. i've gained a tolerance to that cold because while i'm rowing the pacific i'll be desalinating water to drink but also to wash and that mm-hmm. water is freezing mm-hmm. and so if you pour freezing water over yourself and you're not used to it it's quite a shock yeah <laughs> and getting used to that um cold is i think going to be mentally and physically good for me okay
0: so wim so
1: ice baths He's coming Sounds to San Francisco, so I'm meeting him to do a one-day course in about two weeks' time. Oh, cool! So I thought, well, this is going to come as a shock, so I better get get into it beforehand.
0: Yeah. Uh, so what else have you done?
1: A little bit of cryotherapy, but not too oh. much.
0: There's, a, there's like a spot in San Francisco that does. I think the Warriors have gone to do The Golden State Warriors the basketball team has gone. Basketball
1: players love it and footballers because it's really good at getting in to giant thick muscles. You okay. know, places like the glute and hamstrings, which are hard to penetrate with rollers and, and any other kind of equipment, um, it's really good for that. But I'm not a fan. I mean, To no. me, it's like as close as it's going to feel to freezing to death. If you do the one that's like a phone box, it's no big deal. But if you do the okay. full body one, where you're basically in a in a freezer compartment for three minutes at negative 169, I think it is. It is. It it hurts. It stings your skin, and you're like, Jesus, I'm going to freeze to death. I hope you can let me out. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Man, so no more. So what else besides uh, besides those things?
1: Um, I have a sleep routine, and monitoring sleep has been a huge eye opener. And in fact, I got about eight hours sleep both nights while I was doing the Farallon record. Uh, Eight hours straight? No. No, it's broken to check on the boat and make sure everything's all right. But I mean, I slept pretty well. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) And how long do you sleep? Like, what's the what is your sleep pattern like? It depends. So the first night I was on sea anchor between the the two areas of the vessel traffic separation scheme. So I was a little bit more wary that first night. And then the second night, I think I slept through which I always find alarming in the morning <laughs> going I'm I'm this close to this rock and I just have this great night's sleep you know <laughs> and at sea I think you walk you walk this line between on edge and comfortable because you want to be f- afraid you want to be a wary because that will keep you alive yeah and you don't want to be complacent totally. and, and so sleeping eight hours in a row is a little complacent I would in yeah. my opinion <laughs> but I usually wake up if there 's a change in in aspects of the boat swings round or i can hear I can hear a ship twenty miles away fifteen to twenty miles away and i 'm not sure all the time why i 've woken up, but there are they vibrate a lot of of sound through the water with those giant propellers oh okay, so you, often you can hear a ship on the horizon before you can see it oh interesting and you 'd be like boof like a rabbit going okay there 's something out there i 'm not sure what it is yet and then Sure enough, it materializes.
0: Okay. Well, that's nice that you get kind of a warning. Because that was another thing that, again, comes up in your your experiences is like contending with giant ships at sea
1: that may or may not even see you. I just assume they, they're out to kill me. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, always aim to get out of their way. And if they happen to see me and know I'm there, that's a bonus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm transmitting. I'm transmitting okay. via the VHF radio um something called ais automatic identification system and that is so great for what i'm doing because it puts me on the map with who i am where i'm going and all of that whereas 20 years ago you'd be looking at p in p soup on a radar screen yeah so this is the sort of data digital version of radar and it's it's fantastic for a boat of my size But my transmitter, of course, is only about five feet from the water. So I pick up them, but they don't always pick up me. Okay. So I assume they don't.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Have you had any close calls?
1: I did rowing down the coast of California. In fact, it was a bit of a nightmare. I called it the Valley of the Ships as I was converging towards Point Conception. Because, of course, they're converging to Point Conception. Uh Uh-huh. And I, I ran out of wind right before Point Conception because there was a storm coming up from Mexico that um, twisted the weather system around. And I was basically, yeah, hedgehog in a highway for three days rowing in and out of safety. And it was quite stressful at times. I can imagine. Yeah. And some of those ships are like an island. You know, I call them Mersk Island. It's, I don't know how many containers they contain, but it must be thousands. Yeah. Hundreds anyway. Yeah.
0: No, that's crazy, so what um so are you for this longer trip, this five month trip, are how do you uh, navigate the shipping lanes? Are you completely separate from
1: yeah, I won't see so many ships on okay. this on this thing. I'll drop out of the shipping lane really quickly. Okay. There'll be quite a bit of traffic off the coast of Japan, and that traffic probably won't be transmitting anything. There'll be small fishermen, and those first three days will be high stress because of that and then. And then I'll be out of the lanes. There'll be ships, I think, between four hours and four days away, But if I need rescuing. (laughs) But for the most part, I'll be, I may not see a single soul for months at a time.
0: Yeah, so sensory deprivation, like how else do you plan for that? Just like load up the iPod with books on tape? I mean, that would be crazy, because it's not just, you don't see people, you also don't see land. You also probably don't, you know, maybe you see some wildlife signs of life, but for the most part, it's just, you know, you and the sky and the water. I see a
1: lot of wildlife. I mean, you know. yeah, and I think it's, it's like my mother is always so good at, at seeing little wildflowers. Like I walk past, you know, in the countryside and I don't see anything, but she has this awareness of them. And I think I'm like that for wildlife. I spot the wildlife. They're always there. There's never a day, even rowing around the bay, that I don't see a dolphin or a seal or, a, you know, an amazing bird. And because I'm tuned into it, mm-hmm. um, I write. I take. I. I think about being at sea as 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 a special thing. You know, I'm getting a front row seat into, in a way into the best cinema in the world. And it's a privilege, and a, a lot of people. Most people will never go where I'm going to go and see some of the things I'm going to see. And I feel it's my duty to take as many people who want to come on this journey. And I, for me, the best way to do that is through my writing, which I really enjoy doing. So a day at sea that I don't write, in a way, is a day lost. So I try and yeah, think about a kind of entertaining or interesting way of relaying what has happened during my day. And the wonderful thing now is that you can audio blog it. Oh, so yeah. I read to my phone and a memo, basically, and it types it up. And then I press send. Via my sat satellite device, and that's how I was able to write. I don't know, five hundred thousand words a day as I was rowing down the coast of California. Yeah, okay. And that's the stuff that goes viral. People go, "Oh, are you following this?" And suddenly, there's I don't know what was it twenty nine thousand people following that. Yeah, I was like, who are these people? I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, interesting. <laughs> so great.
0: So, five months at sea. What are you going to eat?
1: At the moment, I am looking at a very specific diet which starts the day with a pro bar, um, some baby food for fruit and veg, and a meal shake. So there's a whole new wave of meal replacement shakes. In Uh fact, there's a big brand that came out of San Francisco called... um, What's it called? It's a soya-based one. Soylent? Soylent, yes. Yeah. And um, every country has their own version of that. They usually... Masterminded by tech kids who don't want to cook like ever again. <laughs> that was definitely the case with soylent. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And so it's about six to eight hundred calories in a glass. And for me, for rowing, that's amazing because I can row on it. I can I can consume six or eight hundred calories while I'm rowing as, as a beverage. So that's I don't have soylent though. <laughs> soylent has a lot of sugar in it. But yeah, I start the day with something called huel, which is the UK version, and it's like a poor man's porridge, okay. like a poor man's oatmeal. Um, It's very palatable, has much less sugar than Soylent. I do actually have Soylent later on the day as a dessert to give you an indication of how much sugar it has. (laughs) So, yeah, Pro Bar, baby food, and Huel start the day. And that's a 900-calorie breakfast. Okay. And it barely touches the sides. And then mid-morning I have about 500 calories of chocolate. I like that part. (laughs) A couple of dates, um, about 100 grams of Parmesan cheese, which I love, as you may have picked up from the vlogs. Yeah, Some dried meat and a bunch of macadamia nuts or whatever nuts I feel like eating and then there's lunch and lunch would be a freeze-dried meal okay. but most of the freeze-dried meals have carbs in them and I actually don't eat many carbs so this is a bit of a problem for me at the moment because I bonk you know to use the cycling term immediately afterwards yeah and need to have a nap <laughs> so I'm thinking about either making my own or exploring other bar- other brands like the- there's a paleo kind of range oh right um and then in the afternoon I'll eat more. Basically, I eat every two hours. Okay. And then another freeze-dried meal in the evening with a Soylent shake, which is like 800 calories. Um, So there's a 1,600-calorie dinner. Um, And it's funny because whenever I have a roommate, they always go, oh, it's great. You know, you're so healthy. I can look at what you're eating and eat the same. And I'm like, don't don't touch what I'm eating. (laughs) I'm trying to gain another... 15 pounds don't don't everything i eat don't eat (laughs) (laughs) totally Crowbars bars
0: and (laughs) soylent
1: like when i eat an avocado at the moment i you know knock out the stone and then i fill the the gap with walnut oil (sighs) and a little salt sounds (laughs) delicious (laughs) because obviously the avocado alone is not enough calories yeah (laughs) Yeah.
0: and so is that your that's your meal every single or that's your you know your your Nutritional regimen or whatever every single day same yes. thing
1: yeah man so, yeah dried fruit nuts dried meat and then um, yeah the, a couple of snack bars and freeze dried meals and Yeah, the shakes these shakes are really so- saved me because if you if you're not able to cook you're too tired conditions are rough you know you can you can make up for it with one of these shakes
0: oh so I, I wonder what kinds of you know treats or vices or you know kind of personal things you bring that aren't just uh you know kind of purely to get you like from point a to point b and sort of fuel the trip like what do, do you bring any like personal effects along or anything
1: yeah so i i keep thinking about this you know what is going to be my one luxury item yeah your luxury item right. yeah and um i have a, a fur blanket that's waterproof backed at the moment and that's pretty special but i don't think it's going to come on the trip but when i went to the Farallones, i took with me my hypervolt now the hypervolt is a new idea it's this um these percussion instruments they call them that chiropractors use so they're sort of they look like a hand drill but with a massage attachment (laughs) (laughs) and they've come onto the market for ordinary folks to buy not just professionals yeah so I got one and I was like do you know what I'll take it on the row and there was a a moment on the way back certainly where I rode around the top mark during the day and now I was looking at an 8 hour row because once you start going through the vessel traffic separation scheme you've got to commit so I was 6 hour row now I've got an 8 hour row on top of it and halfway through that my muscle, some of my muscles were like going no 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 more and I was yeah. like yes but you have to <laughs> and so I reached for the hypervolt and I hit myself you know with its massage gun and I was like oh my god it's amazing <laughs> and the, the muscle tension just went oh, awesome. and so I made a video of me using it you know on this rocky boat you know, mm. moving my leg to the side you know while massaging with this vibrating tool thing and uh so that that might be my luxury item in fact a friend of mine notes the founder of hyper ice and contacted them and said luckily i just took it around the farallons you know can you marinize it can you make a 12 volt version and so we're having those discussions now
0: oh that's cool yeah i was gonna ask it sounds kind of
1: heavy it's not it's about the size of a bottle of water okay and i might even be able to make it dual so i can use it as a hand drill slash a you know massage tool (laughs) nice it may not end up coming with me but it certainly helped me on this farallon row
0: nice um, okay, another thing I have to ask about. You have, um, maybe this is a personal record, but you som- it sounds like you sometimes row nude, and it <laughs> sounds like you might have a, like a personal record of 73 days <laughs> rowing naked consecutively.
1: <laughs> is that right? Yeah. When I rowed the Atlantic, we did not wear clothes, me or my rowing partner. What's that about? Is that
0: easier or nicer to close chafe? Like, what's the, the benefit? Or it's just, a <laughs> it's just for fun? The,
1: no, no. There are many reasons, actually. The oh, okay. first is that, particular route canaries to the caribbean is hot i mean really hot and most people do wear clothes because they want to protect their skin but i happen to have had a a really good base tan on that occasion (laughs) (laughs) so my skin could definitely handle it and if you can avoid clothes it's much more preferable because you don't have any you know sweat sea salt boil type issues you don't have chafe you don't do laundry (laughs) there are loads of plus points and it feels kind of wild and free. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like the only time in your life where you can be, you know, naked all day. And that's okay. <laughs> but that was some years ago. That was eight years ago. And now my, my thinking is very different about exposure to the sun. You know, I, did, I definitely wouldn't want my skin exposed to the sun for that many hours or that many days or weeks. So I wear SPF clothing now. Okay. But I'm still having a few chafe issues under the arms in particular it's like the seams or it's the seams yeah so what are you going to do about that well under armor have made me special pants so that's they're like i call them my rowing pajamas but they are (laughs) seamless pants and they are amazing so we solved that problem but now we need to solve the the underarm problem with the seams there yeah Um, but it's a tricky because it's a moving target i've gained i think 30 pounds for this record attempt already And so, I mean, I'm in a unique point in my life where I own the extra small, the small, the large, and the extra large (sighs) in the same, like, cycling shorts. Uh I just skipped large, by the way. I was like, (laughs) I'm not going to buy that. Um, So, yeah, I have four sizes of the same thing. And now I'm kind of into the menswear, I guess. (laughs) 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 Women just don't have, you know, big lats and chunky arms like I do right now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, what else? uh, So besides clothes, food. Oh, so communication. Like, when you're out doing this, four or five months, um, how are you gonna, does it matter to you to kind of stay in touch with the outside world? Do you wanna keep up on news and current events, or how does that work?
1: Well, it's more the other way. It's taking everyone on the journey with me. So I have a um, Garmin inReach, which is a text device, and you can text like a normal phone, but you can't receive texts like a normal phone. And in fact, rowing down the coast, we got tripped up a few times because you can't just send six texts in a row. You have to wait for them to filter through via satellite. So there's uh-huh. a learning to use it thing that goes with that, that, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a tracking device and I blog through my yellow brick tracker. That's the blogs that I, I mentioned I read to my phone and then they, they get sent up. Um, but it is possible now to send back video, Instagram 20, 30 second videos daily oh, for not cool. a lot of money. I don't have that equipment yet. I'm, I need a sponsor to, to step up for that, but um, I, yeah, I plan to send back short videos and like a daily diary type um, piece to camera. So um, yeah, I'm excited about yeah, taking lots of kids and university students and, and general followers with me. Yeah, that'd be cool.
0: And so right now you're in fundraising mode essentially. And so you've kind of devised this new uh, this new idea for, for raising funds. I was wondering if you could tell us about that.
1: Yes. So um, earlier this year, I signed up for something called Patreon, which is like Kickstarter, but monthly. And it's a crowdfunding platform, and I thought, I'll give it a go. It's been one of the best decisions I've made this year. And not for the reason that you think. So obviously the money helps, and it's enabled the project to keep going. But it's the power of belief. Because... When somebody gives you 20 bucks they give you 20 bucks but when they sign up for five a month or 10 or whatever um it's like they're stepping into this invisible room and saying i believe in you i want to be part of this keep going i'm excited and that kind of community and support has been uh, really special to me and i'm nearly up to 100 patreons and a lot of these people have great ideas and have become quite a good resource for running ideas past. Mm -hmm. So for the Patreons, I write special content or give them the first scoop on whatever's going or tell them things that I don't tell everyone else. (laughs) But So that's good and great in keeping the project alive, but it's not going to fund the new boat and it's not going to fund the actual crossing. So in the spirit of crowdfunding, I've decided that I'm going to pre-sell the boat but in a unique way. So my background is in art and my vision was always to do the row and then to have an amazing life for the boat afterwards Mm -hmm. by slicing the boat (laughs) into 60 longitudinal ring frames. So you end up with three inch ring frames that can be hung on the wall and make these beautiful sculptures. So it'll have 60 new lives on 60 walls in businesses and homes and tell the story of the... The struggle, the row, everything, uh, to generations to come, and that was that's the plan. So, I'm going to slice the boat up. It'll be hung by from the ceiling like a kind of mural for a big expedition, exhibition, and then yeah, uh, then those those slices will go off to to their respective owners. So, I'm pre-selling the slices. You can buy a slice for three and a half thousand, which pays for the build of the boat, the equipment, and for the slicing. And my goal is to sell 60 of them, 10 by Christmas, and then six a month through the next year. And um, even though it's a bit like selling the football pitch before the football match... I find it really tangible so I've got quite a lot of talks coming up at businesses and clubs and I mean that's not a lot to raise if you've got 35 people in the audience and they all threw in 100 bucks that buys them a slice for their club and they get to be part of it in a very unique and special way yeah so now I'm on a mission to to sell my slices of this this uh, this boat nice well, um, we don't want to keep you too much longer. It sounds like
0: you have to hop in the boat and paddle back across the bay to get home today. Um, but I just want to say thanks very much for coming on the podcast. It was super fun having you and chatting and uh, good luck on the row and on the training.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, if anyone wants to follow, I am on Leah Row on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and you can even sign up to be a believer on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Row. Awesome. Thanks, Leah. Thank you.
0: Thanks again to Leah for making time to come on the podcast. If you want to keep up with her training or pitch into her fund for her Trans-Pacific Row, um, you can find info on her website, RowLeahRow.com. It's R-O-W-L-I-A-R-O-W.com. And RowLeahRow is also her handle on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. If you want to follow what I'm up to with California Travel, I'm on Twitter at Greg R. Thomas. Or if you've got questions for me or suggestions for who I should bring on the pod, email me at gthomas at sfchronicle.com wild west is a part of the san francisco chronicle podcast network Uh, find us and subscribe on apple podcasts and if you like us please throw us a rating and a review our music today is a track called coming home by ryan anderson and it comes courtesy of the free music archive see you next time